This is episode 21 of the Think Data podcast in partnership with DataWorks, and it's my pleasure to welcome Jay Sarmaz to the show. Jay is the CEO and co-founder at Truve. Truve is an AI-powered legal analytics platform for law firms, and their platform helps those firms understand performance, whilst at the same time helping to drive efficiencies across all parts of the business. Welcome to the show, Jay. And I uh, really appreciate you, uh, you know, taking the time today to talk. And uh, what'll be really interesting for those that are listening is for you to really bring to life, firstly, who you are, uh, what you brought you to the US, and then ultimately, what lo- what took you to launching Truve. Thanks, thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. First of all, pleasure. Um, absolutely uh, happy to uh, go back to my background a little bit. So I'm uh, I'm an industrial and systems engineer, Alex. So um, I've actually started started playing with computers at, at a really early age. Probably 11, 12 is when I first started and started putting together computers and you know really trying to understand uh, what, how, and what makes it work, the way it works, and what are the possibilities and potential. So. That's what kind of made me get into the engineering school and got into, uh, again, the industrial and systems engineering, which is um, actually uh, call, also called operations research. So the operations research uh, teaches you how to use, how to maximize value with limited resources. So any problem that you take, you know, any big problem, take that big problem, break it into smaller problems and try to solve those smaller problems to eventually solve the big problems knowing that you have limitations. So I've been always fascinated about that, that, you know, thought process. You're not just like trying to solve a problem. You're trying to solve a problem within limitations and, you know, resource limitations. Um, towards the end of my college years, I got into uh, a little bit deeper into uh, large scale optimization models. So got into, you know, started doing research on my third and fourth year at the college which actually eventually then got me into the PhD program at Georgia Tech. Wow, okay. Um, so immediately after undergrad, I came to Georgia Tech, um, started doing research again uh, between the business school this time and the industrial and systems engineering. Now it was kind of time to tie everything that I've learned from engineering, engineering school to, to business. Uh, so that's when I started working on real, real life applied um, applications of machine learning and data science. Uh, then, you know, I've got into the PhD program. Uh, after two and a half years, I've, I was like, let me actually go into the industry a little bit and uh, work my way through it. So um, immediately started working at a company here in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. And I really loved kind of Im- implementing and uh, taking all of my knowledge into the industry. So that's how I kind of got into uh, the real world uh, challenges of uh, data and AI and uh, started working on a lot of really big, large-scale data science and AI problems. So kind of a quick background, but happy to dive into more details. Interesting. And I know, obviously, you, you did the PhD. You, you obviously the, then went into industry. At what point was that kind of uh, that budding entrepreneur kind of uh, shoulder tapped on? At what point do you think, hang on a minute, there, there's an opportunity for me to find my own business and actually launch something? It's, it's actually a little bit interesting because so in PhD, you're trying to solve this one very, very specific problem. And you're trying to make this like tiny little bit of an improvement on that one problem and you work on it for a long time. So it's like it gives you like you have to have the grit to stand and work on the same problem again and again 
Yeah. And I think that was from a personality perspective that helped me significantly because it keeps me working on problems that um, that other people would just like stop working on. And uh, what ended up happening is I took uh, about three months uh, from PhD and I was like, I'm just going to go work for for a company as an intern. And when I when I started interning, what I realized is actually I didn't need to go in that amount of detail. The real life problems don't require you to be like 99.9% accurate. If right. you're over 70, 80% accuracy, now you can actually bring things to life a lot faster. So then I was like, I was able to turn problems uh, into solutions uh, very, very quickly, which gave me this, I guess, you know, what people now might call like instant gratification. Um, <laughs> It wasn't as instant as, you know, like swiping through your Instagram feed, but that's actually what um, made me like really happy. I'm, I was like, oh my God, I can actually solve these problems a lot faster. And I can solve a lot more problems than just, you know, just one problem that would take five years uh, in a PhD program. So yeah, I started loving it and, you know, kept working on new problems and new projects and uh, it just kept coming. No, interesting. And, and when when was the idea for Truve conceived and... I know you've only got to look online at the moment. There's so many different AI uh, organizations, Gen AI, normal classic AI startups springing up everywhere. But what's, you know, what ultimately made you think legal analytics, legal kind of AI powered platform as a service was the way to go? Um, so, so that kind of goes back to my, uh, it, I guess, the time that I met my co-founder, Zach. Mm. So I met him uh, at my first job. I met Zach and and actually he had a company and we were trying to kind of like hire him to do one little task for us at that point. So that's how I got to know him. So I've known him for over 10 years. And about six, seven years ago, we were like, let's actually create a data science consulting company. Okay. So we created this one data science consulting company called Scylla Data. And um, the idea, so when we sat down with Zach, we were like, let's actually think about all the industries that are not using their data as much as they should, and let's just create a list. They're like, let's just get a comprehensive list of all industries, and then like, let's find the ones that are least using their data to drive insights and actions. And at the top of the list, there was doctors and lawyers. Mm -hmm. Uh, then we had like these other four or five additional industries like real estate companies, uh, distribution companies, furniture companies, uh, uh, you know, healthcare labs, etc. So we've created this list and we are like, all right, let's actually focus on the top five. So we started going after those industries and um, you know, uh, companies that are specifically in those industries in our region. Then eventually... Once we started working with lawyers, uh, we started getting a lot more demand. They're like, uh, we got one and then one became three, three became five. It just, it just word of mouth. We would just go into these law firms and just pull their data, analyze their data and kind of provide insights and feedback to them. They're like, you know, things like, oh, you're not profitable on this one case type. We think you should drop it. You know, it's almost the traditional data analytics consulting for law mm. firms. Uh, that's how we started. And then eventually we just had so much demand that we were like, we can't handle it anymore. We have to grow the team. Um, 
And um, and at what point? At one point, Alex, what we've done is like we've seen a common problem between all of these law firms. So um, I'll go a little bit in detail over here, and please stop me if, if yeah, you have any say. questions. So um, the, the types of law firms that we are working with are plaintiff law firms. So the plaintiff law firms fight against the insurance companies, okay, which are backed by defense law firms. So if you think about it, you have about 75,000 plaintiff law firms in the U.S., mainly like doing personal injury. And then you have about seven to 10 really large insurance companies. And those seven to 10 insurance companies are represented by defense law firms. So it's basically the whole um, PI or personal injury field is actually, is a battle between these two parties. But when you have seven to 10 really large insurance companies, uh, they have so much data aggregated under that one, you know, under the seven to 10 companies compared to these 75,000 law firms. Mm -hmm. It is, um, they have so much power and understanding of the data. They know exactly how much they can push an individual attorney. They know how much the value of the case they can actually push down. Um, and they built a model called Colossus uh, back in the 80s. And that's what they used to push down the values of cases for these personal, you know, uh, plaintiff injury law firms. So as a data scientist, I felt uh, the responsibility to create a technology that actually fights against these insurance companies and these defense law firms. So that's when um, I started working on the first version of case value estimators. Okay. Uh, which estimates the settlement values of personal injury cases for uh, plaintiff law firms that fights against the, you know, the Colossus technology that insurance companies created. But then the challenge became, you know, how do you bring all of these law firms under one platform to use that intelligence? And, you know, that's kind of the, the, the first crumbles of Truvy coming to life, you know, the case value estimator and then eventually creating a centralized data and AI platform for law firms. Interesting. What a journey. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of this all hangs on a, the, the idea, but equally the execution and obviously you being very strong technically and the, the hands-on elements obviously helped you here. I know you met your founder or your co-founder 10 years ago, and that's kind of how this was born, obviously off the back of the consulting business, identifying the needs, then building effectively a business. But what steps did you take to then, you know, you mentioned just there, it was like, I then suddenly realized, hang on a minute, we've got a business here. We, we, we've got so much work we need to scale. What steps do you take to kind of establish a, the, almost like the founding team um, or like the, the, the original, I suppose, the first cohort of staff and then ultimately launch and scale that product? Because obviously it was just you and your co-founder leading everything. Um, how did you go about kind of establishing that founding team and then actually looking at commercializing this product? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, everything Everything for me, Alex, is iteration mm -hmm. and, and grit. So uh, that's kind of one piece, like, you know, that you take that one problem and you keep working on it, make smaller improvements every single time. Um, it's, it's really, really important. I even say, you know, if I can build a solution that's better than the flip of a coin, right? Like, you know, if it is better than that, that's a good start. Let's start yeah. with like 51%. And then... When it's about 70% accurate, then it's probably time to uh, get out with that product. 
deploy that product and start selling it. And then, you know, then the problem is like going from 70% to 99%, understanding what is going to contribute the most to the improvement of that solution. So that's kind of the, the thought process of commercializing a product. Uh, but from a founding team perspective, so, um, so entrepreneurship is really hard. Mm. You, people think that, you know, people think about these uh, success stories of people going from zero to a billion dollars in like two years, three years, and having these like crazy lives and whatnot. That is just like probably 0.0001% of old entrepreneurs. Yeah. When you get into time rainbows, is it? I think everyone thinks you're on this ivory tower and everything, you know, it's uh, it's literally the easiest job in the world. But I think, yeah, I think your point's really, really valid there. Absolutely. And and a lot of people also, what they don't realize is entrepreneurship is a, is a 10 year, at least a 10 year journey. So mm. you're, you're, if like you're in it. Um, and once you have that mindset, when you talk to people, it is actually uh, not that hard to understand if somebody has that entrepreneurial spirit, somebody wants to do something like significant or you know something uh, extraordinary and have that mindset. And um, so, so like we, we, we pull, so entrepreneurs pull other entrepreneurs. Uh, we've spoken with a lot of people. We've probably spoken over a thousand people over the last two years. Uh, for our founding team, and um, you know, obviously, you, you you know, you try to select the ones that has that mindset and that has that growth and entrepreneur entrepreneurship mindset to go with. So uh, that's how we went, and um, we also know everybody that that we have on our team wants to do something at some point themselves mm-hmm. too, right? Like they uh, they want to be entrepreneurs too. So. Now within Truly, we're trying to convert a part of our operation into almost like an incubator. So we want to actually um, have our team members come up with ideas, present them, and then in return, we want to be able to fund them. And we want to be able to give them the resources that we already have uh, within our team to uh, bring those ideas to life. So Interesting. it's that kind of a um, uh, setup that, you know, that we think is going to, is going to work and, uh, you know, attract kind of the, the, the biggest entrepreneurs out there. Yeah. It's striking a fine balance though, isn't it? Because obviously you want them to come and ultimately focus on scaling Truva and getting this business, you know, to where you ultimately you want to get it to, but then obviously giving them enough opportunity to hone their, and uh, their natural entrepreneurialism, I guess. So it's, uh, that's a really interesting concept. And I, I know, obviously, you know, you obviously met your your co-founder. There's a lot of kind of budding founders who listen to this. They're either in industry or they, you know, they, and they're looking to transition or they are a founder and maybe going through those pain points that you ultimately went through yourself. But in terms of hiring and growing, um, we are in a unusual space at the moment. Companies want to hire. The cost of money is more expensive. Talent is still quite scarce. But how do you establish those kind of, values and those kind of principles that you ultimately could hire against because in the early days it's gut feel it's passion as you say you're meeting your mm-hmm. your co-founder and you're both bought into that journey but when you're looking to bring that second layer in what steps did you take to really look at those values and principles that ultimately you could hire against and also review their performance against and that alex that that's a great question uh, just in general and and i think hiring is the the hardest 
part of being an entrepreneur mm. or building a startup because the team at the end of the day, uh, you know, makes ideas come to life. Even yeah. if there if there is five percent chance that an idea is going to make it, that five percent depends on the team that you have. So if you don't have the right people, you, you're not gonna you're not gonna make that happen. So the team is absolutely the number one uh, piece, I think, for uh, for a startup. So in terms of values, I've actually um, uh, we had a uh, we had an annual company meeting a few months ago, and before that, for a few months, uh, we were trying to sit down and write about our values. Like, what are our values? Like, how you know what kind of people are we looking for, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And every time we we tried to do that, it actually did not work. Mm-hmm. It did not feel. It felt very artificial uh, instead of natural. And, um, you know, if something is not feeling natural just in general, it, it just means that there's something that, that is not right. So then, is that because you, is that because ultimately you felt like you were forcing the, we must come up with some values and vision to, uh, because that's what everyone else does? Or is it equally just, you weren't sure the values you were coming up with really meant anything? Because I know companies, they can pay lots of money for these companies to come in and give them their whiteboards and their values and off they go. And most companies never follow them. Is Which one was it? So it's like, so when you write down something and say, hey, these are our values, um, it, it actually, if you're not really feeling it, it doesn't just happen. Yeah. You know, having something on a wall that just says, all right, here are the five, six values that we have doesn't just work. So mm-hmm. instead of that, what we said is, all right, let's, Think about the script in a different way. What are the values that we have in common for our team right now? Just let's let's just think about the values. Let's just think about the way we interact on a day-to-day basis with you know with our team, with our clients, and everyone. And um, and inherently, when you add more people to your team, you're adding them because there's a cultural or a value fit. And then when you come together, those values get stronger. You may be getting like other people that have um, different values that are more valuable. Mm. And like now your other team members are um, you know, getting used to it too. So eventually, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to go with this is, uh, what we found is values are coming from your team and they establish over time. That's why every person that you add to your team is really, really important because um, they're going to bring some... Um, you know, good values to the table and other people are going to learn from it. And it's going to, it's going to actually allow your team to evolve uh, over time too. So, so then we are like, all right, let's actually think about all the values that we have so far. And that actually resonated really well with the people. Um, So so I'll just give one of the examples, Alex, like, so one of the values that we have is being borderless. So Mm -hmm. we, as a team, we at some point had, people from seven different countries on our team. Wow. But it didn't matter where you were in the world. Everybody was like super connected and, um, you know, uh, interacting well. And uh, people were genuinely curious about their team members and friends and whatnot. So being borderless uh, was one of our values. And um, yeah. I wouldn't just like sit, you know, we wouldn't just sit down and just like say, oh, like we'll be borderless. That's one of our values. And yeah. That's just not a thing, I guess. 
it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think uh, companies take do follow a kind of a natural path, and I think as companies grow, uh, you cannot, you can control culture to a certain degree, but equally the people you hire, certainly in the early stages, they're ultimately what will make your company. Because um, I think the best leaders are the ones that are empowering those people to step up and actually you know, have a voice and actually influence that kind of product and drive that performance from a high level. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, a, it's an interesting take on, as I mentioned earlier, it can be a very complicated and drawn out process that, and quite contrived at points as well, but it sounds like you just quite simplified it. And I'm guessing people are more bought into that now as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and also like there's some new values that emerge as well that are growing over time too. Yeah, uh, it, it's just amazing to see. And I'll say one final thing. Also, um, when you like, you know, one of the reasons I think teams do not um, accept a new hire is if that new hire is not a good fit, not just from a culture perspective, but from values perspective. Yeah. I think values come before before the culture. If the values do not align, then uh, you'll very quickly understand that that person is not going to fit on the team. So, um, yeah, we've, we've seen that happen as well. Like we have had a few hires and um, very quickly we just realized that, you know, the, the values are just not a, not aligned. And, the, you know, it, it's, you know, the company is almost like, like a body. The body is not going to accept yeah. if there's not a fit. So, um, yeah, that, that was also the case. Yeah, no, I think that's really, I, I really like that. And like, I know you obviously, you relatively early on in the journey, you mentioned earlier about kind of the 10 year commitment, which entrepreneurs really need to have in the, the back of their mind. But there's a lot of people listening to this who, as I mentioned, are budding founders, are kind of uh, future entrepreneurs. But when you were on that journey of conceiving and launching a business, um, what do you think is the biggest thing you learned on that and what could you impart on other entrepreneurs in terms of what maybe they should do or equally what they shouldn't do when looking to launch? Um, yeah, so I think, um, so, so let, let me try to answer this question like in a few different ways. So number one thing is, um, so if you go to any industry and just talk to let's say 10 to 20 companies in that industry, just take them out to lunch and just ask them what their problems are. With not a whole a lot of companies, which is 10, 20, you're going to start seeing some patterns in terms of the problems that they're having. And you can then list those problems and then you can see, you can start doing research, right? Like you can look at, you know, are there companies that are actually attacking those problems and solving those problems or trying to solve those problems or, you know, just going through the list and finding out what, um, what is really doable. So, so I'm basically, I'm trying to talk about the ideation, finding an idea yep. stage. So, so then you'll very quickly, um, understand if, if you're, you have a problem that you can attack. Um, so then, um, you know, once you have the idea, it's again become all about iteration and and consistency. So start with that fifty one percent, yeah, and start going um, after that that big solution eventually. Um, but obviously, uh, going back to the operations research comment I made earlier, so uh, one of the key, uh, I guess, 
key characteristics of an entrepreneur is understanding your, you know, kind of resource limitations and what you can do with your limited resources. Uh, so that's always important. So um, think about your deliverables and timelines and then kind of come back from that and see what you can do with your existing resources. So having that uh, limited resources mentality changes a lot of things. So I would definitely focus on that. Mm. Um, and yeah, just keep, um, keep, keep working on it. You'll, you'll be surprised what you can do uh, yep. when you keep working on the same problem for a long time. Um, yeah. It goes back to your PhD mindset, I think, isn't it? Those fine tuning that kind of the, you know, just fine tuning certain elements of it in, in a business really has do that enough. I think the, the, uh, the impact can be really, really big, um, and equally surround yourself with great people and hire people that, you know, really challenge that as well and challenge the status quo every day. I think, yes, yeah, uh, I think it's a fascinating insight. And I, I know you obviously are a startup founder. You, you've obviously you mentioned earlier, you spoke to lots and lots of other founders, lots of other startups in your space and equally in other spaces, but now you can, can sit back. What do you think is the difference between a great startup um, versus an average one? Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's a really, really big um, question, Alex. And so to make a really great startup, a lot of things need, need to come together. So there's a lot of things that need to be right to mm. be a great startup and everything else is, you know, what makes it, uh, what makes an average startup. So, uh, th that's kind of the, the starting point. I would say number one thing is obviously the team. Mm. Um, so, so the team is really important. You know, obviously you need to have like, you know, um, you need to have, um, you know, the right idea and whatnot, but the team is, is the number one, um, you know, leaders who understand again, resources and what can be done in a, in a limited, um, you know, when you have limited resources, the vision of the founders, um, if the if the culture is promoting innovation and learning, um, and uh, finally the agility and the adaptability of of the team to changes, because you know what you start with is is usually uh, is actually what you yeah. end up with. So, so we have made so many changes along the way um, that the agility the, the, the agility mindset is is really important. So. Um, I would say people is number one yeah. uh, idea. The industry is number two. Uh, probably timing mm -hmm. uh, is number, number three. So you yeah. can work on the same problems and you know the timing may not be right. Uh, and like a, a fun story, actually, my father-in-law has worked on neural networks back in 80s and 90s. Okay, wow. Um, so he is like one of the uh, earlier researchers or, or professor, professors in computer science working on neural networks. And um, I, like we have a lot of these conversations with him like all the time. And he's like, you know, like all this stuff you worked on like 20, 30 years ago, but then there were not enough resources. Like there was not in, you know, machines that were that strong as, as we have today. Mm. Um, that was why just, you know, that research ended at that at that point and then now 20 years forward now you have all the resources and can use um, yeah. use all of that so so that's why like timing is really important i think they yeah. worked on the right things 20 30 years ago but the implementations they're now they're just now seeing it um so it's, timing is really important and maybe one final piece is i think is luck so you need to have maybe spray off 
block it at the end too. So sometimes yeah. you, may, uh, you may be at the right place at the right time and, you know, everything might come together. Yeah. I think it's the, uh, those four things are kind of really that secret recipe. Get those right. Um, it's interesting you touched on people right at the beginning because I think a lot of people overlook that. A lot of founders overlook that point and they, you know, it's their vision, their business, their baby. Uh, and he, ultimately, in some cases, their kind of ego that leads to the company failing and actually you should bring in those great people around you and never settle. I think that's the mindset for people is never settle uh, and keep pushing on. And it's interesting, your father-in-law was kind of working on these use cases, as you said, 20, 30 years ago, but there was no real appetite or desire to need them right now. But we're kind of obviously front and center. AI is everywhere. Chat GPT, we're talking companies being launched all over the, the place. But if you look over the next kind of six to 12 months, what do you think we can expect to see in this space in terms of whether it's kind of outside of pure kind of legal AI and legal analytics, but actually more broader? What do you think's next for us? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure like you've heard the big investment in this one company called Inflection AI, yeah. uh, 1.3 billion. So, there, so, so right now there's a big race in terms of building the next personal assistant, AI assistant. Yep. And uh, that's definitely going to be the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason the investment is that heavy is because you need a lot of computing powers, which, um, which you know, companies do not want to wait for a quantum computer. As no. you know, quantum computing is also the next big, yeah, one of the next big things. Yeah. So like, we don't want to wait until the quantum computers are here. You know, we have to have this one giant machine that can actually uh, learn everything and, you know, anything and everything that ever existed pretty much, uh, and on, you know, on the web. So that's absolutely going to be the, uh, the number one item personal assistant. Um, I would also say just in general, AI is, you know, you might have heard this, but AI is like electricity. So now everything is going to be like powered with AI. I think every single piece of cars and phones are already, you know, uh, AI powered now, but like everything that we do our houses, uh, you know, food and this and that, everything is going to be pretty much AI powered. So it's going to exponentially grow the value uh, of everything that we do. So I think the economies are going to grow significantly mm. faster and we'll see more and more AI applications. Yeah, I think, I think you're completely right. And I think what we're probably also seeing now is companies being created now um that may be the next kind of facebook amazon you know we just don't know but actually i think the acceleration of those companies because of ai is going to be far quicker than what we saw with facebook in 2004 to now um probably the biggest fastest growing tech company really changed the way the internet was used i think what you're going to see with ai now is companies being conceived um and you know, that, that rate of growth is going to be far quicker, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, the, the time to value is definitely a lot faster. Um, and, and like, you're also trying to like release some gen AI based products too. Yeah. Interesting. We've been working on it for about, I don't know, about a year now. So we've been, um, working on some, some applications as well. Interesting. And we can expect to what people can expect to see those being released in what have you got a roadmap in place for that? Yeah, there's already one that actually is being released this week. Um, uh, specifically in the mass torts phase, the mass torts um, uh, practice area. Yeah. And then there's another one that's going to be released later this month. 
um, that is going to be for personal injury. So uh, we've already been working on some some use cases for legal. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think with that in mind, I think it's um, you know a great way to end. And you know, thanks so much for just talking through or talk for hours. I think there's a huge amount people can take from this. I think there's uh, you know the insight, the entrepreneur journey conceiving a product, launching a product, and actually going back to those kind of people and those four points you talked about, what makes a good product and a good startup ultimately is going to be really well received. So thanks, Joe. I do, do appreciate your time. It sounds obviously with the release this week and obviously something later this month, you're, you're pretty busy. So I appreciate your time. Thank you, Alex. It was a great conversation and look forward to uh, you know hearing from the, from the people. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it.